ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Martin Glover, or as he's better known, Youth, is one of the most prolific producers of our time. He's still, however, probably best known for being the bassist of Killing Joke, though he left the band in 1982 after just a few years and before they achieved mainstream success, though he did, however, return in 1994. In the first part of this interview, I talked to the man who has been consistently part of new creative styles in music, from dub funk to industrial techno and psychedelic trance, about his early life. So, youth, Martin Glover, welcome. Um, I want to start with something that, I mean, it is your early age, and I know you've talked about your boarding school a lot, but I want to go even back even further and just find out whether your parents were musical in any way or what sort of music they listened to, or were they even culturally interested and what, you know, how you grew up very young? Okay, so, yeah, um, good question. Um, my parents weren't musical, but they loved music. So I, I was born in 1960. Um, I grew up, I was, bo- I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, but I left very quickly. My father had met my mother doing his national service. He's Welsh. She's fifth generation white colonial Scottish um, and they thought they'd have a better life in the UK as the country went into independence and to give me and my sister British passport so we I spent two years with my grandmother with my sister while my parents found their feet um, up in Birmingham so I remember music up there a bit um, but actually, my first memories of music was when I was living with my parents in a little village called Stoke Poges, just outside Slough. And it's probably 1967. My father would bring back albums now and again and play them. But one day he brought back Sergeant Peppers. And I was immediately drawn to the sleeve, took out the inner bag, cut out the moustache and stuck it on my jumper and then played the record incessantly. And uh, that's a very vivid memory. And I remember that was just a portal to another dimension. I just loved it. But, you know, this was 1967. My parents didn't really take drugs, but they were a very young, beautiful couple. My mother was a model. Um, She was one of the fairy liquid girls. 
on TV. Um, I actually did a few ads with her, one for British Rail and one for, for Outline Margarine, I remember. And she drove a red Mini Cooper S. And my dad was a bit fly. He was a bit of a villain, really, except he wasn't violent, but he would run dodgy laundrettes and cigarette machine operations. And he was in and out of prison. And uh, But he was very charming, very good looking, and he was a lover of life. He was a real hedonist for the good things in life. Come his mother and his family, very working class, very poor in Birmingham. And so he was, you know, really grabbing life by the throat and enjoying it. Problem was he drank a bit too much, you know. But I remember going to parties around Slough in the 60s and these beautiful women and everybody having a great time. And I'd be in someone's living room. I'd find the record player and I'd put on a single, I don't know, it could be Sugar Sugar, any any of those singles. I'd just play it to death, get the tennis racket out and start, you know, miming along in front of the mirror. That Those were my formative experiences. And that carried on till the early 70s. And I think the one that really kicked in for me was, um, well, the first single I ever bought, David Essex, Rock On. I played that to death. And then Gary Glitter, Rock and Roll Part 2. Now, we're two of them, I must have been about 11 then. Did, and... they, did they want you to go to boarding school? You said your father was in prison a lot. It sounds like uh, maybe maybe it was difficult to bring up a child alone for your mother. I don't know. Did they want you to go to boarding oh, school? It was, was, very... it, was it for you a choice? Yeah, it was a very... It was difficult, very difficult for my mother. She had my, my sister and my, my me. And often when my father did come back, he'd go into these sloughs of depression and, you know, walk around the house in a dressing gown all day and run up debts and send me and my sister to go and talk to the bailiff and say, Daddy wasn't in. I mean, it was, looking back, it was a bit tough. And I can tell it was very tough for my mother. But nevertheless... He was very charming. He'd leave a diamond ring in the washing up club for her and things like that. Very romantic. But, yeah, I think around eight, I'd got... They were getting uh, divorced and separated. Um, and I was sent to a, a weekly boarding school in Slough, right by the tracks, LVS, and I quite enjoyed that, although I never, I'd come back home at the weekends and then my mum would drive me back Sunday night and she'd always have the radio on as she drove me back and it would be, I think after the chart rundown, they'd, they'd it'd go to the King's Singers and they'd it'd be singing something simple, the sophorific choir stuff. And it just made me feel really depressed going back to school. But I got on with it. I quite enjoyed it. I had a, I remember infesting the whole school with pet mice that I brought in and suddenly all the other kids had it, had them. And I don't know, it was quite a formative days. Really. I did enjoy I had a couple of friends there. Um, and music was quite popular. I remember buying a tonic suit, getting into Scar, um, the skinhead look with Scar. Um, 
And that was kind of a big deal. I mean, other people but, I've talked to about going to boarding school, they've sort of mentioned that they felt on their first day, they felt a little bit abandoned, that the, the umbilical cord was cut at a very early age in some sense. Did, was, do you think that that was something for you or did you really hold the connection to your mother because you were only there week, you know, on a weekly basis? Yeah, it was a gentle introduction, I suppose. Um, uh, but there was a feeling of uh, being like, get on with it. I mean, my mother's Scottish, you know, McNeish. They'd leave the babies on the side of the hill and the ones that managed to come back would, would, that would be kept and the others were cast aside. She's quite tough, my mother. So, but it was when I went to, um, they, my mother then ended up very quickly remarrying uh, and, uh, my stepfather, who they're still together and they're almost in their 90s, Barry. And Barry was the opposite of my father. He was mid-management, provincial, worked at a printing factory in Slam as a, as a, mid, as a sort of mid-range manager, but very stable and secure. So, but he was difficult. Uh, he had three kids and he could be really grumpy and he didn't have the charm of my dad, but he had a lot of other qualities. I mean, he could be a bit of a bully as well, but he also had a bit of a heart underneath it. But... Um, he, uh, he, I feel really fortunate now that I had two very different and very strong male role models as growing up as a kid. I mean, um, because many kids today don't, don't know their fathers. And actually, my dad didn't know his father that well because he died from the war uh, early on. And my mother never knew her father growing up in Africa. And her mother was very strong, independent, a bit cold, sent her off to uh, a Catholic boarding school in Kenya at the age of six, which she ran away with from at the age of seven and a half, eight, and, and found her way back to my grandmother's house 500 miles away. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, they didn't know any different, really. And it was that generation. So, but my father was very warm, and my, and my mother. Um, but still, they were quite tough in many other ways. Um, going to Kingham Hill in Oxford, my mother had garnered a bursary as a single mum. I mean, at the time, I was living in a two-bedroom flat in Paddington with five kids. And... Me and my stepbrother were up in the attic. It was right at the top of this old Victorian block of uh, houses, flats. And, you know, that wasn't sustainable. So um, my mother managed to get me a bursary and I went to Kingham. And I was about, I'd already done a year at a comprehensive, actually, in Kilburn, St. Augustine's, which was pretty rough school. Um, and... You know, there were stabbings and it was quite violent. And it was actually, strangely, but not really, um, I found myself in a minority group as a white kid because predominantly the school was black and Asian. And, uh, and that was an interesting um, experience uh, growing up in a, in a predominantly uh, black uh, cultured 
school. Um, so I got really good at sport and mu- and I got into music. And, you know, I made a few friends. I was starting to get into music a bit. Um, uh, but I was also getting into problems and there were gangs and I would, I would got caught shoplifting a few times, which was kind of part of the gang thing. And my mother was freaking out. Um, but I was also learning music. I started to learn trombone and French horn and read. And, but that attracted a lot of uh, bullying, actually, on the bus on the way back often. And I found various mechanisms to cope with that. But still, it was OK. Um, but then I was shunted off after a year to Kingham. And um, actually, that was great because... Uh, St. Augustine's, there were like 35 kids in my class. I don't think my one of my teachers ever spoke to me once. I mean, I wasn't getting an education. And if you were seen to be engaging with the education, you'd get bullied for it. So I didn't get any education there. And I came to Kingham, you know, really at the bottom of the class. But at Kingham, there were suddenly classes of 15 kids and very committed dedicated teachers it was a Quaker school had a Christian ethos very light one and two-thirds of the kids were bursary kids uh or lost fathers in the art war RAF kids um and so it wasn't like a, a Harrow or an Eaton where there was fagging and stuff like that all the kids were from you know challenging difficult family backgrounds and and then they were as confused as everyone else. I feel lucky I didn't go at 12 in the first year because I think the kids are a little too vulnerable at that age to be able to stand up for themselves. And I'm sure some of the teachers there were a little bit sadistic and there was abuse going on. Um, but not, I, but there was generally the younger kids that would be picked on for that. So I didn't get any of that, but... Nevertheless, I was in a very authoritarian, you know, place. Uh, you know, I, I was away from home. And, and How I important think, was uh, that to you culturally to be, or creatively, I should say, to be at that school? Because, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about before uh, a particular teacher um, and how this teacher sort of gave you some impetus in, in terms of your creative, you know, know-how and knowledge and music well no i had two good teachers there that were really good um david shepherd who was a housemaster and, and, and an english teacher and he actually got me into literature and got me reading and david carpanini my art teacher who was this magnificent welsh painter who reluctantly got into education um He's now a, a member of the Royal Academy. He's an academy and, and he's an amazing painter. And he, I mean, I, I learned a lot from him and I still draw upon that with what I do with production today because he basically let you get on with it and he'd let you bring records in and play records. And then he'd sort of say, oh, that's interesting. And if you needed some guidance or advice, he'd come over and say something positive, you know, never say anything negative. And then he'd let you get on with it. And even if it was completely not his thing, he'd be very encouraging. I I thought that was amazing. 
Um, and I really connected with him. But I connected with a lot of the, the lessons. I, I mean, I did get an education. I mean, it didn't work very hard, but I came out with six O-levels, I think. Um, and I got accepted to an art school at 16 when I left after my O-levels, rather than having to go through my A-levels. With a letter from David and my six O-levels, I got accepted to Wimbledon and Chelsea, I think. But I ended up joining a band. But I think those few years were, yeah, pivotal for me. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was an amazing experience in hindsight. I'm sure I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if I hadn't had that experience. What it really gave me was uh, independence and confidence at an early age. Uh, you know, and also, I mean, you know, my mum was a bit kind of, I remember coming back. I, I actually had a, a chemistry teacher who... Um, I said, can you teach me how to play folk guitar? Because I didn't have guitar lessons. And he ran this sort of Christian folk meeting, crusaders meeting every Sunday. He said, okay, I'll teach you guitar, but you've got to come to the Christian folk meetings and play along for the kids. So I said, yeah, all right, I'll do that. So I did that for a year and I learned how to play guitar pretty much. And uh, I immediately started writing songs and uh, formed a little band. And then I went back to my music teacher and who was very clever. He was one of the Sunday Times crossword writers, you know, and he very articulate. I said, look, I don't really want to do the grades and, and all that, but I've, I've learned this guitar chords. I'm writing songs, played them a couple. Can you just teach me how to play these songs on the piano, these chords on the piano? And I'll be able to start writing songs on the piano. He goes, I wouldn't normally do this, but because you've done that, I'll do it. So he gave me a couple of lessons. Immediately started writing songs on the piano and playing the piano. So I think I was pretty resourceful. But um, also I was in a place where I had time and space to really get into things. It, it, you know, and it's so much so, I thought it was so good. Um, I mean, I know some of my friends didn't have such a good time. And, you know, would never go back, let alone send their kids there. But I actually sent my kids. I sent my son there. I tried to get my daughter to go there. I found myself uh, as a single parent, solo parent in London for about six, seven years. And that was really, really, really challenging. This must have been, you know, about seven, eight years ago, I suppose. And um, I thought maybe boarding school. Actually, I'd sent Jake to... My daughter's gone through Steiner School throughout her life. And my son started there. So I was determined to give him an alternative experience to the schooling I had. Hey, y'all. It's your girl, Kiki Palmer. I'm proud to introduce to you my new podcast. Baby, this is Kiki Palmer, exclusively on Amazon Music. I'm putting my friends, family, and some of the hottest experts in the hot seat to ask them the questions that have been burning on my mind. What will former child stars be if they weren't actors? It's only fans, only bad. I want to know, so I asked my mama about it. These are the questions that keep me up at night, and I'm letting y'all all in on it. Come kick it with me and my weekly guests as we go down the rabbit hole and dive deep into my mind together. Listen to Baby This Is Kiki Palmer exclusively on Amazon Music. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. But you were also at school with uh, uh, Alex Peterson, weren't you? And also um, Guy Pratt, I think. 
Yes, I was at school with Alex and Guy and... Uh, I mean, that's quite amazing, really, that you have, you know, there's that breadth of talent in one school. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I mean, with, my son, you... with my son, with my son, Elliot, he was suddenly in the bottom of his class. And I had a teacher's meeting with this young Kiwi teacher. And he said, look, because he'd been to Steiner, they don't do academics till they're seven He's behind. He's in the bottom quarter. And he said, I shouldn't tell you this, but we're pushed to just focus on the top 25% so we can get our stats up as teachers. I said, that's disgusting. He said, I don't agree with it, but that's the way it is. He said, if you can afford it, send him private because he won't get the attention here because he's in the bottom quarter. I was a real slap in the face, but I appreciated his frankness. And that's when I started looking at Kingham. And, and he had a really good experience there as well. So, I mean, for some people, it was really good. I think it was, you know, it was, it was pretty good for Alex as well. But if you, I'm reading Alex's autobiography at the moment, she did with Chris Needs. And it, it was tough me going through the Kingham years because he did go in at 12. And he had a very distant mother who he'd run away from home and go back to the boarding school in the holidays and he'd come to my mum's and stuff. And his mum was really, didn't really want him around that much and was a bit mad and, yeah, had real health, mental health issues. Um, But what he found in Kingham was a community and a family, actually. And the head teacher was amazing. Um, And uh, Noddy, we called him. And... uh, he was very caring. I ran away from school at one point and broke the school record for going, getting out for like two weeks without anyone knowing where I was, which absolutely freaked my mother out. I did ring her up after a few days. But my dad was totally cool. When I did. He said, come back whenever you like, you know, take your time. <laughs> when I, and then when I went back, I said, I'm not going back there. And he goes, why are you about to do your O-levels? You might as well finish it. Otherwise, what are you going to do? And I said, okay, well, they have me. He said, yeah. So I went back and my headmaster um, took me in and he said, what was that all about? And I said, oh, I don't know. And I ended up sort of telling him about difficult problems I was having at home, my mum, my stepfather. And, and I looked up and he was looking at me with tears in his eyes. And, and he said, don't worry, you'll be all right here. We'll look after you. And... Um, he was a lovely guy, and I did get punished for running wild. I actually had a sort of fifth form study block sort of study, which was great. And uh, <coughs> I abused my privilege by being caught smoking cigars and drinking rum in there one night by my housemaster, which is why I ran away. Uh, and but I, so I didn't get that back, but I had to do a month in, in, the, in the third year's door, uh, sort of common room. And eventually I got it back before I left school. But I mean, I'm glad I went back and did those O-levels. And, you know, not only did um, Mr. Cooper, the headmaster, was very kind to me about it. I mean, I, I, I came back a sort of absolute returning hero for the other kids because I'd broken the school record. So, you know, I mean, my experience is... Well, pretty good. It was weird because I did, there were no girls there. Well, a couple of girl teachers. I had this one French teacher that was absolutely stunning. Um, but 
And that was odd, that repression of not being able to naturally engage and, and hang out with girls was odd. And uh, I'm sure, you know, that's why I kind of made up for lost time with that when I left school. But uh, but like now it's, it's co-ed and there's girls there and, you know, I think it's a lot more healthy. And that is it for part one of this podcast with youth. I'll see you for part two, where we look at his life as a producer. 